Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Welcome to the Mindvine Podcast. My name is Daryl Mathers, and today is a great day to talk mental health with one of my favorite people. Not only is he a mental health advocate and lived experience, he is a fan of hip hop, you know, um, much like I am, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg. I'm sure there's a few others he knows that I don't know. But not that we're going to talk music, but it's just part of his personality. We've got to know him well doing some work at the hospital and we're going to share his story today, and I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Jordan Beenan. Hello. What's going on? Just having a pretty chill morning. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. That's better than the opposite, right? So we're we're going to uh, we're going to chat about kind of your your journey, which I know is extensive, and and uh, I mean maybe we can just start by you know your mental health journey like what at what point did you first become acquainted with you know mental health and the fact that you know it might be part of your your life well uh i always had a sort of intense sadness that i would now label depression as a youth uh, i had a very tumultuous uh, childhood, not because of my parents. My parents were wonderful and they treated me wonderfully. And I got along exceptionally well with my sister, but I was relentlessly teased and physically assaulted as a youth. And so I felt a deep, deep sadness, uh, depression, uh, uh, there's no point in this. What is the point in going on? What is the point in doing this? Uh, this hurts so bad. No one likes me. No one cares for me. There's no purpose in me being here. But I never, obviously never because I was so young, I never uh, thought, oh, I have a mental health, uh, not problem, but, you know, issue. Uh, so I sort of kept on going through life and high school was no easier. Um, lots of teasing, lots of isolation, lots of just generally feeling like I didn't belong, like no one cared. And, uh, so like a, a, a constant state of depression. Every day felt like a slog. Every day didn't, every felt like there was no joy. There was nothing to look forward to. And yes, throughout my childhood, I did do things. I was in Boy Scouts. I played hockey. I liked to golf. I liked to fish. I did all these things. But even if in the moment I could experience some happiness, that depression, that sadness, that feeling like it wasn't all right was always lurking behind me just waiting to grab again and pull me back into it so uh high school i switch schools i move and i switch schools in grade 10 
and I endure some of the worst treatment and uh, and abuse that I have ever endured. And I decide I'm I'm gonna end it. It's all gonna end right here. And I I feel like I probably didn't have the full intention of doing it because I mentioned it to another student who I thought I could trust. And he and he told the principal and the principal told my parents. And that put an end to that. But even that did not trigger a, oh, there's a mental health issue here. It just sort of got pushed by the wayside. Are you okay? We love you. You can come to us with anything. That sort of stuff, which is great. And it was wonderful. And my parents were wonderful. But I still felt it. And for... Years after that, I would cling to things like music and books and stuff as like some sort of life raft to get me through and give me something to feel like there was someone out there that knew what I was going through. So then I go to university and... Uh, things really start to take a intense uh, sort of turn. Um, I'm dealing with a lot of things that I have never dealt with before. I'm coming to terms with things and it's really affecting me. So I go see a uh, psychotherapist for the first time in my life. And we talk things out, and I feel like things are better for me at that time. But uh, I, I begin to not be able to sleep and be up for hours and hours on end, and sometimes days on end. And I'm still feeling depressed, but I'm also feeling really titillated and excited and... So I spend all of my time learning more and more and more about this band and that band and this, you know, hip hop artist, etc. And I'm trying to learn uh, weird history instead of just doing the history that I was in the school to do. Uh, weird history and have these intense political talks and just all this intense energy that I now recognize as mania, the non-sleeping, the, the, the chatterbox, just the whole deal, uh, I now recognize as mania. And then I would crash and I would feel horrible and, and not wanting to do anything and not wanting to go anywhere and not wanting to shower, not wanting to just, in any way take care of myself. And so I went to the uh, school, the, the Queen's University Medical Center where they had uh, psychologists and stuff that you could speak with. And I spoke with a 
he was actually a history professor, but for some reason he was also working at the the medical center. And I spoke with him and I explained my situation and I said, I believe I'm suffering from depression. And he scoffed at me and said, depression, really? And uh, so I left from there. I had no help. I was just spinning in the wind and things just progressively got worse. Uh, in a couple years after that, I couldn't sleep at night at all. So I was up at, up all the, all the night until about nine in the morning and then I could crash from about nine till 12. And then it would start all over again. I was drinking extremely heavily. I I was depressed. I just didn't see any purpose in anything. It didn't make sense to do anything. It didn't make sense to make any plans. It didn't make sense to try and help myself. And again, no one swooped in and said, we think you have some mental health issues and I didn't grab that I needed mental health assistance and uh, because of my experience with the medical center on campus I certainly didn't trust them anymore I didn't want to go and experience that sort of shame again so I went about my life and Things just progressively got worse. Uh, so, Q 2007, uh, I think I, I was feeling better uh, because I had gotten sober and I was away from the school environment. And I was working a job that even though I didn't love the job, it was good to have something to do and all these things. So I started feeling better. So I started <clears throat> making plans to stage kind of a, a fresh start. And so my sister was going to Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. And my parents said, if you want to go we will pay for you to go. And so I applied, they took me and I said, here I go. And I went to Dalhousie in Nova Scotia and I thought this was gonna be the, the chance for redemption and fixing everything and so on. But I never considered what it would be like to meet no one to make no friends, to have nothing, and live in an apartment alone with nothing and no one. So that depression came right back and it was exceedingly difficult. And then I started feeling this feeling of, uh, not wanting to hurt myself, but being able to hurt myself. So uh, I could jump out of this window right now and it'd be perfectly okay. Uh, 
I could stop that bus if I stood in front of it. It would be perfectly okay. Look, I'm just going to cross in front of traffic without signaling. That will be just fine. And more and more of these sort of things. You should open the oven right now and stick your hands in because nothing will happen to you. And I started really realizing that that is not conventional thoughts, that that is not how the average person thinks of uh, their experience on Earth. And, uh, and I started doing a lot of crying, probably because I'm alone all the time, but I started doing a lot of crying. And my mother talks to me on the phone and she says, I think you might need some help. And I think you might need some antidepressant. Maybe try some Wellbutrin. Go talk to a doctor, see what they can do. So I go to the Dalhousie Medical Center and I speak to Dr. Glenn Andrea and I tell him the whole story and he says, I'm pretty sure that you have bipolar disorder. And has anyone ever told you that? And I said, no. He said, I'm pretty sure that that is what we're dealing with here. So we're going to start you on this little regimen and we're going to monitor and we'll, we'll go from there. So I think, okay. And I start really worrying because while I don't know a whole lot, I know bipolar disorder is a serious medical issue. So then I started thinking, oh man, I'm crazy and they're going to put me away and they're going to this and that. And I think that a lot of people probably have that type of reaction when they receive their initial diagnosis. But uh, I went home and I told my mom uh, on the phone what had happened and what she's, what they had said and she was like oh boy well you've we've definitely got to deal with this and so I started dealing with it taking the pills and so on and I met with Dr. Andrea every week and we would and I had to get a blood test every week so we could assess my lithium level and uh for 14 weeks I saw Dr. Andrea every week and we assessed my lithium level, which had to be upped over and over and over and over to stop me from feeling the intense mania that I was feeling, the non-sleeping, the, the intense thoughts of delusions of grandeur, self-harm. Um, that took a while. And I think it's because I'm a, a very big man and I was smaller then, but I've always been a big man. And I have a, an incredible tolerance for substances. Uh, I'm now on the largest dose, dose of lithium that my psychiatrist has ever seen. And when I spoke to another psychiatrist this year and told him how much lithium I take, he wouldn't believe. He would not believe me. So that took a long time with Dr. Andrea. We had to keep upping it, and upping it, and upping it, and upping it. And at the time, and uh, I was taking 
the Wellbutrin and it helped at first, but then it stopped working. So again, working on taking a different antidepressant to figure this whole thing out. And while this is happening, it's no easier on me. I'm still going through all of this stuff and up and down and I don't know what, and then uh, still being alone the whole time. Now my sister is there, she's in Halifax, we even have class together. She comes over and sees me. She sometimes gets me groceries. We talk on the phone. But just your sister is not enough. You need other people in your life. And that just wasn't happening. And I didn't feel like leaving the apartment and so on and so forth. So that was really rough. It was a very rough time. I couldn't go to class. I just, I was unable to gather myself properly to go to class so that uh that didn't yield any friends and it meant that i had to take an ill on all of my courses except for one and uh that was kind of devastating because i felt like i had failed again and I thought that this was going to be the great restart of my life. And what it turned out to be was just a giant mess. And uh, it was a big learning experience for not just me, because that was very intense for me to learn and figure things out. But for my sister to learn what I was going through while also trying to go to school. And then my parents who had some understanding, but like, really, if you don't have it or you're not a psychiatrist yourself, you generally don't have a great operating knowledge of bipolar disorder and how it all functions. So we're all sort of as a fit and my, my then girlfriend, now wife, she's also trying to figure it out. So all these working parts, we're all trying to figure out how this all works together. And it was very, it was a very intense experience, crying and upset and, and, uh, encouraging. And it was just, it was very tumultuous. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but, uh, cause I got, as you're kind of sharing your, you know, your story, um, there's lots of things that, you know, kind of popped in my head, but <laughs> You know, one of them, you talk about high school and university and, you know, obviously struggling with your mental health, you know, at various points in those journeys. One thing, you know, I kind of, I shouldn't say blame, but as I get older, I kind of look at the way stories are told in the media, especially as, you know, we're growing up, I'm obviously a little bit older than you are, but, you know, we've been, we were told, you know, early on in our lives through television and movies that, you know, high school is the best time of your life. College is the best time in your life. And it it's not for everybody. <laughs> and I feel like there's sometimes there's these expectations that, you know, forget about, um, you know, a mental illness, but just, you know, even somebody who's emotionally and, and healthy, it's, you know, it can be difficult to navigate those things. Then you throw in mental illness and all the other factors like, it can be a really difficult time, especially like in your instance, you reach out for help and you don't, you don't meet the right person at the right time. Yeah, definitely. Definitely.
like that, like you think about Queens, you think about your experience at Queens, one of the best universities in the world, and they can't help you when you reach out for help, right? Hopefully, things have improved, but uh, it just it's astonishing when you when you think about it. Um, and it, like just to touch on that, like you did reach out for help uh, several occasions um, when you finally found the right person at Dalhousie, uh, what was it like to have somebody uh, treat you like the way, I can't remember his name, but uh, your psychiatrist at the time who first diagnosed you with bipolar, like what was that experience like having somebody take you seriously and try to understand what you were dealing with? Uh, Dr. Andrea, when he was amazing the first time I met him. Like he was so helpful and, and he wanted to connect. And I was like, that's great. And like, I feel good. But then when you see one man put so much time into you and knowing that they have so many other students that they see during the week, they see during the day. And that when you come through, they're still there wanting that connection caring how you are actually doing and and wanting to make sure that things are actually okay with you i was blown away and i i felt like a, a an intense uh almost love for the man like you keep me safe you keep me okay you keep me you know doing okay so i when when it came time for me to leave dalhousie and move back to ontario i couldn't have expressed my gratitude more intensely than i did with him and i told him you you saved my life you keep me okay you kept me safe uh as you you know you're going through life and you know you're, you mentioned your wife, you're, you're a father now. You think about your experience as a child, and there's been a lot of attention in the last number of years put on, you know, bullying and pink shirt day and different things like that um, to, you know, to, have, to find a way to help kids who might be struggling. Um, like, how do you, like, how does that, I'm kind of fumbling the question, but as somebody who experienced that, like, are you, optimistic that things have changed for young people uh, who are in school like you were you know years ago or do you think there's still some issues there that we need to sort out uh i think in many ways it is better because there is a lot more understanding of what bullying and that type of behavior does to children and so at the younger grade level, they are not so quick to say, well, deal with it yourself, or it's okay, they're probably just playing, or something like that. They, they deal with it. You're not, you don't see, well, I'm sure you still see, but you don't see and hear about the same level of tyranny on the playground in grades two, three, four, five, as you may have heard of in previous generations. So I think that's a lot to look up to. They're dealing with it at the root and that's sort of passing its way up. 
Now, what I think is all, is uh, shameful and scary is the intense level of violence that is being seen in schools now. Uh, the the intense level of almost gang-like activity. Uh, not necessarily saying there aren't gangs in schools, but like the this sort of like don't mess with me, don't talk to me, don't touch me, don't look at me, or else. And then echoing that with massive outbreaks of violence and and so on. And then obviously cyberbullying is just unreal just unreal people are being told about it and people are learning about it and there's there are things going on to stop it but it's still pretty bad and uh interestingly i did a teaching placement in 2012 and i was teaching a class of grade sevens and I showed them a video and my YouTube uh, name was logged in on the corner of the video. And this student in grade seven that did not care for me wrote down my name, then went on YouTube at his house, searched my name, found a video. It was admittedly a very silly video, but a video I had made for a university course and flamed it the entire time, calling me this name and that name and the next thing and all sorts of things. And I had to report it and he got in trouble. But if I, at the time I was 29 years old, but if I, you know, a 30 something year old man can get cyber bullied by a grade seven, then what can a grade seven get from a grade seven yeah i mean we've had a couple people on our podcast before who have been victims of social media bullying or cyber bullying and as a father it's horrifying because uh, i think about even the things that went on you know in in our childhoods that stayed in the playground right like i'm you know you didn't bring it home you know your parents often didn't know what was going on because you didn't tell them and and there wasn't a there wasn't safe places to 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 tell people and and like you said a lot of it was schluffed off boys being boys you know this is part of you know canadian childhood is dealing with these kind of things and and it, it's nice to see it's nice to see a, a shift because i think i mean and hopefully the shift continues but the problem is still there. Like it's just, they're dealing with it in a different way. The it's happening in different, you're using different tools, but the problems are still there. And I think people's eyes and ears are open, um, for a lot of different reasons, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, going back to you, um, you know, kind of where you left off, you know, you talk about maybe, you know, we can circle back a bit, your experience with mental health and when how I came to know you was uh, you know a few years ago when the hospital was um, putting together its 100th anniversary campaign and we were looking for people in the community uh, you know patients leaders whomever who wanted to represent the hospital and, and help us celebrate 100th anniversary by uh, educating people about mental health and the work we do and you were one of the ones who applied and 
and you were one of our ambassadors of hope. So you did a lot of work for us in that period of time. And as you're telling your story, you know, like from elementary school, high school to, you know, university, and even, you know, as a, as an adult, you know, pretty difficult mental health story, right? A lot of different things going on. And then all of a sudden you're an advocate. So how do you get from, you know, I'm alone and I don't want to leave my apartment, you know, or I'm shamed, shamed by uh, people in the education system feeling alone to being out there and everybody knows that Jordan's bipolar and on lithium and you don't care anymore. Uh, I, I have always felt like I've kind of been an open book my entire life. And so I felt like this was nothing to be ashamed of and that I could, even from an early time in my, my journey, that I could be an advocate. I wouldn't have used that word at the time, but like I could be someone to show people this is what it looks like to have bipolar disorder. This is what it looks like to have a mental health uh, concern. And uh, show them that, you know, we're not loony. We're not out there to hurt you. We're not out there to do unconscionable things. We're, we're, just, we're just people that have a, a little extra something to deal with that the rest of uh, people that don't have that don't have to deal with. So I've always been pretty open about it. Uh, I really feel like my continued sobriety helped me a great deal. Uh, it made it possible for me to have clear thinking. It made it possible to not have symptoms uh, that were exacerbated by drinking, etc. Uh, so then I really just went down the road. Uh, I had a psychiatrist. I met with him regularly. I started regular therapy. I did that. I, I still do that uh, every two weeks. Um, I really had great assistance from my parents, from my sister, from my now wife. Uh, it was it was a lot of help. It was a lot of uh, support and I was able to to put together a life and become something that would enable me to be a, widespread advocate for other people and for the hospital and you did that and your pictures in places and you were introduced at places on social media you know as as jordan mental health advocate what was the response that you got from friends and family about what you were doing with the hospital at that time everyone i know was very proud of me and very happy for me uh, my parents were very proud of me and thought I did an excellent job. My wife was very proud of me. Uh, I was approached by former professors and so on saying like, wow, you've done an amazing job. That's incredible. You're speaking for so many people that can't speak 
for their own condition. Uh, when I when we did the the exhibit at the art gallery, so many people told me that what I did spoke to them. My speech spoke to them. They they felt like I was truly representing people. It was it was touching. Since you look back at you know like your whole your whole journey, um, there were times where you know people could have helped you, right? If they're if they had known more. Um, what do you wish, like, you know, if, if you were watching somebody else kind of go through the beginning of your journey, like with the susceptibility to mental health issues and, and different, you know, kind of taking a similar path that you took, like, what would you, you know, what would you wish for them? Or what would, what would you tell people who are around them how they could help? Uh, I... For me, my support is sort of a three-pronged attack. Talk therapy with a professional therapist. Psychiatry, because they prescribe the medication and they, they monitor you and they make sure you're doing okay in terms of your chemical health. And then close uh, friends or family giving you support. And I understand that not everyone has these opportunities, but that's what really worked for me. So I would wish that on all people. Now, that being said, talk therapy is not always uh, an expenditure people are able to make. So in any way that you can reach any type of talk therapy for a subsidized rate or a, a free sort of situation, I would 100% recommend it. It sounds like it'd be scary or off-putting to talk to someone about something that you have, you know, cloistered inside yourself for such a long time, but it's really freeing to get it out, to have someone who cares in the sense that they care that you are hurting and they'd like to hear more but doesn't care like they don't judge they're not concerned about about what you tell them they're not there to pass judgment it's really great psychiatry it's so hard to get a psychiatrist right now uh sometimes on the wait list for a year that certainly doesn't help but I think it's worth getting your name out there, getting and trying to get someone to take care of you. And then the family aspect. Again, not everyone is perfect with their family or whatever, but most people have a family that they choose, whether it be friends, whether it be coworkers, whatnot, or they have their actual family. Let people support you. Let people in. Let people hear you. People love you. People want to be there for you. And you just have to accept that. And that will that will make things... It'll take that weight off your back. It's perfect message as we get into October. It's Mental Illness Awareness Month. I think October 10th is World Mental Health Day. And it's because of people like you that 
share your story and, and don't have any limitations. You're pretty honest and uh, I think people need to hear that. And um, thank you for joining us today and, and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Begins in